Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast, which covers the most interesting, uh, important, but also controversial uh, uh, events, ideas, and people in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. Welcome again to all my listeners. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, Please let everyone know about the podcast. If you like it, share it on your social media pages. Um, Go follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast. Uh, You can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can follow the Facebook page. You can go to our website, churchcontroversy.com. And you can also, if you like, become a a patron of the podcast by donating on our Patreon account. Um, Very blessed to have some patrons, not many, but some uh, for the podcast. And um, you can also find them wherever else you listen to as well, even though I'm hosted now by Spotify for Podcasters. So, on this episode, uh, we have a new episode for you. And this is a sort of one-off, and I'm trying to give you guys more content. Some single episodes are a little shorter. And so I think I'll start doing book reviews, but not just book reviews of new things, but older books that I think are helpful to you to understand the history of our time. And we're starting this time, this first sort of new uh, type of episode, uh, with a book I had heard about years ago, um, but had never got around to reading. And that is The Roman Option, Crisis and the Realignment of English-Speaking Christianity, which was first published in 1998 by William Oddie. If you don't know who that is, we can get into him in a second. But this book was about the attempt of a group of Anglicans within the Church of England, the legally officially established Church of England, Protestant Church of England in the 1990s, to leave and enter the Catholic Church corporately. As I'll get to in a moment, it's his account of why this came about, how it happened, why it didn't work at the time. Now, if you don't know the history, I'll get into this in a moment, but uh, Adi was had been, William Adi, we'll get into his biography in a second, had been not only a member of the Church of England, had been an um, Anglican clergyman, uh, theologian, um, and what happened to push him into, when a lot of these uh, Anglicans into the Catholic fold in England was, in 1992, the uh, General Synod of the Church of England voted to allow the ordination of women and 1993 he became a Catholic, and so this is about this story. And the reason I wanted to go over this and review this, and the way the thing's spelled in the podcast, it's review, going back and looking at something, is that I think there are a lot of parallels in the process these Anglo, Anglo-Catholics went through and some of the, the difficulties they encountered that help explain, or at least shine a light on certain things going along in the Catholic Church today, particularly this whole issue of synods the synodal way in Germany, the synod on synodality. If you know any former Anglicans, and if you know you listen to the podcast long enough, I, I attend a Latin mass community now, but I had been a member of, the, of one of these Anglican ordinariates where you had former Anglicans coming over and forming parishes. And so a lot of them have seen this movie before. And so I thought it'd be a good time. I mentioned this in my latest article in Crisis Magazine. This is kind of where the Catholic Church seems to be headed. So I want to uh, go over this stuff and just point out some of the things that are going on that help you make sense of what's going on and prepare you, by the way, for a possibly very divisive future. So anyway, let's get into this um, and talk about William Oddie. Um, he was born in 1939, 1939, died in 2019, uh, from the north of England, from Wakefield in Yorkshire, was the son of um, what they call nonconformist, non-Church of England Protestants, dissenters or nonconformists from the established church in England. 
uh, was into literature. I uh, went to study literature at uh, Trinity College Dublin uh, in Ireland as an undergraduate, then took a PhD eventually at Leicester University, also in literature, uh, this time on uh, Thomas Carlyle and Charles Dickens. But the big thing about uh, Audie was his uh, religious journey, because by the time he got to college as a young man at Trinity in Dublin, he was an atheist, and according to friends, he would actually go around and try to try to argue his Christian friends out of their faith while he was in college. Uh, what happens is that in the early 1970s, one of the things that begins to change his mind is he becomes secretary of the Ancient Monument Society of Britain, which he, they went around and... Uh, you know, um, looked after old, you know, historic buildings, and the you know being exposed to the beauty of ancient churches began to to uh, change his mind. Eventually, he had a nervous breakdown that interrupted his doctoral studies, but uh, once he finished, he was confirmed in the Church of England. Soon thereafter, uh, he took what they take as holy orders, and ended uh, St. Stephen's House, Oxford, which was one of these colleges at Oxford. Oxford was one of the bastions of what is called Anglo-Catholicism. If you don't know what this is, if you're a you know, traditionalist, what, does, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Anglo-Catholicism. These are, these are Catholics who, who thought of themselves as being, Anglicans who thought of themselves as being part of the wider Catholic Church as they thought of it. I'm not going to delve into the details here. Some of you probably, most of you probably know, some of you probably know a little bit of this anyway. But for, for a long time, since the, uh, the days of Newman, the people who didn't leave in the 19th century, if you know what the Oxford movement was, people who stayed, they increasingly became more traditional in worship, some of them also in, in doctrine. And by the early 20th century, you had a group of them that were essentially Anglo-Papalists. Uh, they were people who, you know, wanted to become an, come into the union of the Pope. Some of them even adopted a, an English form of the old Roman rite when the... Um, the uh, mass was changed in the 1960s. They adopted the new Roman rite, the Novus Order, what a lot of these parishes did. So they were genuinely eager for communion with Rome. And anyway, he became part of this this milieu and uh, was ordained an Anglican clergyman. He also became, very shortly thereafter, a, a journalist. Uh, while he was a chaplain, first at Pusey House, another one of these uh, Anglo-Catholic uh, places at Oxford, and then a parish rector, but in 1980, he began writing for the Daily Telegraph of London, one of its big newspapers. <laughs> and to give you an idea of what, his, uh, what he wrote about, he criticized liberal trends in the Church of England really harshly. Um, the first column that he published in the Daily Telegraph in 1980 was titled, quote, Is the Holy Spirit really a bourgeois liberal? <laughs> so you can kind of tell what kind of person uh, he was. He's kind of combative, liked talking about politics. Uh, he would actually, from what I understand, preach on current events when he was in England. He would actually take a newspaper with him into the pulpit. But he also was a, a serious guy, and he eventually entered the fray very soon thereafter against women ordination. And in fact, he published a book in 1984 called What Will Happen to God, which was about um, feminist theology. And his basic uh, I, the sense of I got from looking at it was that he basically warned that the acceptance, the acceptance of the logical conclusions of feminist theology would inevitably transform uh, the theology of the overall church. He makes a point at one point in that uh, book that every woman he knew who had accepted the, the premises of, these, of this feminist theology either left the church or stayed in and tried to transform it into something different. Excuse me, I'm a little thirsty there. Um, and um, he became part of a block of Anglo-Catholics who, we'll come back to this in a moment, the main body... Um, 
governing body of the Church of England in England is called the, the General Synod, blocked uh, attempts to to allow the ordination of women until in 1992, at a, a major vote, they lost and the General Synod signed off on it. Um, thereafter, he, he continued to work as a journalist. He was the, became the editor of the Catholic Herald UK and turned it into what it more or less remains, a sort of voice of conservative Catholicism in England today. It had not been that before. Uh, he also continued working, as you'll see, to support the idea of Anglicans coming into the Catholic Church corporately, which he called for, calls for in the book, and which eventually, of course, came to fruition in 2009 when Benedict XVI issued Anglicanorum Cetibus, establishing the ordinariates for groups of Anglicans who, Anglicans who wished to enter the Catholic Church corporate, corporately. He, um, he resigned as editor of Catholic Herald in 2004, but continued to write more or less till his death in 2019, including a, a book about G.K. Chesterton, whom he kind of resembles, by the way, in Bill, kind of a bigger guy, was William Adi. That's his life. So what about the book, The Roman Option? What is The Roman Option? Well, The Roman Option, of course, is the option of leaving uh, the Church of England for Rome. And this starts, um, well, it starts way back, actually. It goes back before this. But the immediate context is the, the battle over the ordination of women. And the first steps toward this were taken, not coincidentally, by the American branch of the Anglican Communion. The Anglican Communion is a communion of daughter churches, whatever you want to call it, of the Church of England, the biggest of which, at least not the biggest, <laughs> not in terms of membership anymore, but wealth and influence, has been for a long time the Episcopal Church in the United States. In 1974, a bishop in Philadelphia uh, uh, in the Episcopal Church began ordaining women illicitly in the sense that it was not authorized at that point. Uh, the next, that was 1974. The next year, the Synod of the Church of England passed a resolution not uh, allowing this, but saying there were, quote, no fundamental objections to such a step. And one thing to keep in mind here is that Adi mentions that a campaign for women's ordination in Britain began really soon after that, which he said was funded and encouraged by American Episcopalians. I mention this because, of course, America, as a general rule, is really wealthy, has a lot of money, so they can influence things like this. In America, uh, about a third, uh, about two years, I say two years after that, I believe it's 1977, that, uh, someone can correct me, it's late, late 70s, the, uh, when the General Convention of the Episcopal Church in the United States uh, voted to basically normalize this, about a third of uh, American Episcopalians left. Some of them began talks with Rome, and then a few years later, in 1980, John Paul II, um, created what he called the pastoral, what's sometimes called the pastoral provision, which allowed some of these, um, some of these pastors of these, these Episcopalian pastors to come over to Rome, uh, um, actually some of these communities to come into Rome with their pastors who were then ordained priests. So you have this pocket of creation of, you know, Anglo-Catholics coming into the church this way. And so you have this uh, situation, you know, in the United States developing. And I mentioned in in um, in um, in 1992, this came to a head uh, in uh, in a vote by this general synod uh, in the Church of England. And Adi, basically, in the book, he talks about this, and he's, I think he's pretty much right. He he says the whole thing was less about women than about the priesthood, what it was, what it was supposed to do, and um, he says it effectively meant the triumph of a Protestant. Uh, idea what what um, what ministry amounted to in the Church of England. And again, I mentioned this 
you can kind of see this at work today, I think, in the German synodal way, right? Most of these people clearly don't believe in the Catholic doctrine of, of the priesthood. Uh, there was a pamphlet released a few weeks ago, I guess, in Belgium calling for the abolition of the priesthood. So there's a little bit of a you know, similarity there. One thing I'll note about this is this vote in 1992 uh, became a watershed for the Church of England because a lot of people knew after that you couldn't. This is, the, this is one of Adi's main points is at that point, you couldn't go along pretending that the Church of England was any way Catholic. Again, if you're a Roman Catholic, you might think it, you've been pretending for a long time anyway, but whatever. Um, don't, be, don't be so judgmental uh, for obvious reasons, but um, uh, they were effectively finished. They knew they had no place in that body anymore. And so a couple of things about this. One is that the way, the, the, the way he described how the Church of English bishops behaved, Church of England bishops behaves is very familiar sounding. He says they were taken off guard by the reaction uh, of the Anglo-Catholics because they thought everyone would just go along and get used to it. Um, very much like administrators whose whole goal in life is to make sure there are no, no, uh, no one's upset and everything, the big machine keeps moving. Um, but the other thing to note is after this vote is that um, you almost had immediate, immediate declarations by the winner in all this, which of course was the women who wanted to be ordained and their backers. Uh, they all claimed that they didn't want to marginalize their Anglo-Catholic opponents in the Church of England. But this is almost immediately what happened. Uh, they almost immediately began to marginalize them. And again, I'll come back to this, but there's some similarities here you should see with what's going on in the Catholic Church today. And I'll repeat this for you. But he also says, again, again, the bishops just sort of acted like Again, they were more concerned to save the life of the institution at all costs rather than about the truth of what was going on. Another thing, by the way, he mentions in this, and I have to, I'll quote him on this in a second. Um, well, one thing, obviously, is uh, one thing I didn't know, I mentioned this, by the way, is that you'd ha already had, I think since the 60s, the Church of England had already been ordaining women as deacons. Use ordaining, by the way, with quotation marks if you like in your mind. There were about a thousand of them uh, of ordained women deacons in the Church of England by 1992, so the pressure was there because of that. So if you're wondering, yeah, uh, the the whole idea of women deaconesses is is a wedge um, to try to pry open the priesthood. But he also mentioned he was very specific to mention the role of the general synod of all this. And I want to come back to this real quickly and just quote from the book because it is um, such an interesting quotation. And again, we're going to the synod and synodality today in the Catholic Church. And he said, um, he mentions, this is the quotation, he's talking about the role of the General Synod in the Church of England. He says, the simple fact was, I'm quoting here, the simple fact was that the unity of the Church of England was in peril from the moment the General Synod was given enough power to effect radical change of any kind, unquote. And he's talking about in the 1970s when they, the point is that this, and by the way, this general synod uh, of the Church of England is a 20th century um, construction. It's not, it's nothing native to the Church of England as a, even as a Protestant body. But as soon as it was introduced, as soon as this, this synodal process was introduced in the Church of England, it almost immediately began to be used for radical purposes. And so what are the Anglo-Catholics after this vote in 1982 when they seem like they're going to be pushed out? Um, Adi says they were of three minds. Uh, some uh, were never going to leave the Church of England. They'd grown up in it, they're going to stay in it, even though they accepted that there really was no more Church of England. The quotations are pretty heartbreaking to read. 
Like I'm staying in this place, but this no longer, this no longer, it was really depressing to read in some ways. Others were hoping for a negotiated settlement. We'll get to that in a second. Others uh, wanted to go to Rome. This is what Audie would do, William Audie would do in 1983, along with probably the most important person in pushing for um, uh, Anglicans to be received corporately into the Catholic Church, uh, Graham Leonard, who was the former uh, Anglican Bishop of London, which we'll get to in a moment. The other sort of reaction to this was in the wake of the vote, the Church of England tried to mollify those who refused to, to recognize women priests by creating what they call principal, provincial, excuse me, provincial episcopal visitors. They're usually known as flying bishops who would go around the country ministering to those people who didn't want anything to do with the other bishops in the Church of England, um, who, of course, refused to recognize women priests, and the bishops who ordained them. And in other words, they basically created something that was supposed to be temporary because it looks it looks like what it is, a church within a church. Uh, and again, this should, you know, probably set off. There's some things, obviously, within the Catholic Church today about people being segregated in order to get them out. Uh, I'm thinking, yes, yeah, of the Catholic traditionalists. Uh, there's something of this going on here. The uh, people in the Church of England uh, who had won that victory clearly wanted to get rid of these people um, uh, without having to make a fuss out of it. Apologies for that. Um, but anyway, what was the reaction of the Catholic Church in England this time? This is also a fascinating thing that uh, what uh, Audie describes, because you're going to see in a few months after the vote in the Church of England, um, Graham Leonard and others began to reach out to the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, Basil Hume, the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster is the t titular head of the, the whatever, the primate of um, the Catholic Church in England, to discuss possible corporate reunion with Rome. And um, as you're going to see, Hume was favorable. Uh, others were dead set against it. Um, there was also, it's also slightly different in America. There were there was a little bit more positivity toward this idea because of the pastoral provision. Audie claims that the, that the uh, efforts of the American side were enthusiastically being received in Rome in the early 1990s. This is mostly because of Joseph Ratzinger, who was the one who was behind a lot of this. Although I wonder if he's playing down uh, potential opposition. This is 1998 when he published this, so he didn't want to come and say it out loud. I can't imagine there wasn't pushback in the Curia about this. Nonetheless, the discussions went forward uh, in 1992 and 3. Um, Hume met with some of the other, uh, there were three Anglican bishops who might come over, and they met and discussed the whole issue of Anglican holy orders, which, of course, Leo XIII had declared null and void, as well as the possibility of a, of a Catholicized Anglican liturgy. Uh, meanwhile, several members of, the separate, separate, of a separate Anglican group uh, from America met with Joseph Ratzinger and others in Rome, and um, he seemed fairly enthusiastic about this, according to Adi. Um, however, there began to be serious opposition from within the English Catholic world <clears throat> once this idea got out for a couple of reasons. One, Adi says there was two. One is that there was what he calls a knee-jerk reaction against, I'm paraphrasing, knee-jerk reaction against outsiders who didn't seem fully Catholic. Uh, he complains a lot in the book, too much in my opinion, about a quote-unquote ghetto mentality among, among, among English Catholics. Uh, they were suspicious of former Protestants. 
On the other hand, there was the opposition of liberal Catholics who openly talked about not wanting to have conservative Anglicans come into the Catholic Church for reasons you can guess. But you don't have to. Adi tells you. He talks about the opposition of a feminist theologian named Mary Gray, who was working at a Catholic university at that point, as well as the editorial board of the London Tablet, which is still in existence, which is a liberal Catholic newspaper, uh, one of whose editorial board actually told Adi, according to him, that, quote, we are all against you. He means the Anglo-Catholics who wanted to come in. We are all against you. We all favor women, women priests. He also noted the opposition of what he calls a, quote-unquote, ecumenically-minded English Catholic bishop, whom I don't, won't name, but he all but accuses him of opposing the move because he actually supported women's ordination. He also, by the way, as, a, as an aside, noted there was some opposition from Catholic priests who resented the dispensation from celibacy that many former Anglicans did actually receive when they came over. Uh, five priests actually published a letter against it. And um, there was opposition, by the way, from the American church as well. Um, uh, a sort of combination of it led to the sad story of Clarence Bishop. Clarence Bishop was a, well, he was a bishop in the, Ameri in the Episcopal Church in the United States in Texas. And um, he entered the Catholic Church, I think, in 19, I can't remember the dates here. I think it was 87, 88. I have the, here, let me quote the book here if I can get a, a hold of this. But he, he um, wanted to enter the Catholic Church, and then he was going to go through the process of, you know, <laughs> um, you know more seminary formation, re-education, whatever. And then, you know, become a priest in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the Catholic Church in Louisiana. And he was invited by the Catholic Bishop of Baton Rouge, and he invited him in. It was, you know, he was going to give him, you know, uh, invite him without the, the the usual delay, give him special permission so that he could come in as a, and be ordained as a priest. It seemed to go smoothly. And all of a sudden, the Bishop of Baton Rouge basically said he was going to create a, a, a council of priests, local clergy, and get their get their input on this. And. Um, at this meeting, apparently a lot of opposition uh, came came about of having an ordin uh, someone who was a married man become a priest, both from liberals who opposed this because they <laughs> um, they didn't want them to uh, um, they were imposed the, because they weren't allowed to marry, but also conservative uh, apparently priests who just didn't want didn't like the idea for any reason, and all of a sudden the bishop backed off and refused to carry out the ordination of this former Anglican bishop. And then for several years, for a year or so, he was left out in the cold. Uh, he had left the Episcopal Church. He had he, There was nothing for him to do in the Catholic Church. He had no friends there. Eventually, a couple of people in the Episcopal Church reached out to him. Uh, he came back into the, the Episcopal Church and became a bishop there once again. And so, again, there's this opposition uh, from the church in certain certain areas. Um, galvanized by, uh, I think, the liberal branch is the big thing, but there was even just a knee-jerk re reaction there of not wanting to do things differently and, and not wanting to make any accommodations. There was also concerted opposition in the Church of England, um, mostly in the press by liberal Anglicans, uh, many of whom, according to Adi, were fellow travelers with their Catholic counterparts. He says very interestingly at one point that these Anglicans, these liberal Anglicans, were big fans of Cardinal Martini of Milan, uh, the, if you don't know who Cardinal Martini was, Mar Cardinal Martini is the so-called godfather of the San Gallen Mafia. That's the group of cardinals that basically tried to get Jorge Bergoglio elected pope. 
uh, Cardinal Martini uh, was you know, a, a, one of the great progressive cardinals of the 20th century. So this should give you an idea of where their mentality was. He was one of their favorites. And some of the Church of England press even accused uh, these, uh, the Catholic Church of England of, of trying to hatch a papist plot to overthrow the Church of England. So all this opposition mounted on the English bishops. And so when they uh, met in 1993, they had a big annual meeting. They, um, they basically were going to outline a program that would have done things like, again, bring in groups of Anglicans corporately, give them a, a sort of Catholicized Anglican liturgy and all that stuff. But this was all squashed by this opposition. They still allowed the possibility that corporate reunion by parish might happen. Several, attempt, several groups of these Anglicans attempted to do this, but only a few managed to. And the rest failed either from opposition, outright opposition from the Catholic side, for a variety of reasons, or from bureaucratic inertia. Most bishops just not knowing what to do with them when they want to try to come over. Many went into forward in faith, which again, I mentioned that's that sort of, uh, sort of odd church within a church um, <clears throat> set up within the Church of England for these people who rejected women's ordination. And so the whole thing was squelched. And the rest of the book, most of the book takes up this, this narrative. The last couple of chapters of the book talks about why uh, this, this stuff failed. And predicts, by the way, uh, they predicted that eventually it would happen. There would be corporate reunion with some of these groups. And of course, it is the moment he turned out to be right. <clears throat> but I come, I'm going to point out a couple of parallels here in terms of what we can learn from this, this narrative of these Anglicans trying to escape, the this, you know sort of liberal revolution by bureaucratic means using synods. I think the first thing is that, again, the parallels uh, are too clear, right? This bureaucratic revolution affected by this, by these, you know, um, lay bureaucrats. In fact, one of the things he actually mentions in the book is that uh, sometimes, you know, people mention, you know, Anglicans had this great tradition of, of lay governance and Audi said that Anglo-Catholics really hated that because it meant these sort of lay bureaucrats uh, who imposed this bureaucrat bureaucracy on the Church of England and made it this mess. Uh, they were, were happy to leave that when they left the Church of England. And so the influence of the General Synod in this whole process is, uh, is interesting. Another parallel I see, interesting one, of course, is the scapegoating of people who are too traditional. <clears throat> The situation of the Anglo-Catholics, forward in faith, sounds a lot like, a lot like what the what's going on now with with traditionalist Catholics, herding them into separate groups with the idea they're going to get they're going to get rid of them eventually. Uh, seems all too clear the parallel. Third parallel, um, again, the actions of the bishops. Uh, again, I, I can't stress this enough. I, it's almost hard to tell them apart. The bishops of the Church of England, the bishops of the Catholic Church, they don't seem to care about much other than the sort of the survival of the institution. Uh, and again, I, I'm not trying to be critical, overly critical, but it doesn't look like, <laughs> it doesn't look like anybody cares about the truth of things. Uh, again, there are exceptions, and I'll, I'll, I'll go farther and say there you can more in the Catholic Church, but um, eerie the parallels, uh, how little concern there is for the truth of what they believe. 
then finally, there's a lot of talk, uh, again, on the liberal side of Anglicans and all this, about the gene. And you hear this a lot, by the way. The genius of Anglicanism is its comprehensiveness. Comprehensiveness. The idea that we comprehend all these different beliefs and stuff. And I have to say, when I heard that phrase that Adi, you know, talks about in the book, uh, my mind immediately went to, I just did an episode on Cardinal McElroy, calling for what? Calling for greater inclusion in the church. And I can't help but think that inclusion means including things, comprehending things that shouldn't be in the church in the first place. A couple of uh, other observations here I think are worth making. One is the experience of these Anglo-Catholics with the church. It's very interesting to read this book and, um, and to see what the expectations of these Anglo-Catholics were. And um, just to give you a couple of um, examples here. One, they clearly expected, by the way, uh, a what you might call Vatican II version of the papacy. Uh, literally, literally, he basically says that uh, Adi does, that they were going to get, you know, a Vatican II that was collegial and not heavy-handed. <laughs> I'm laughing because you know what the current pontiff is like. Uh, yeah, this this is the quotation here. He said um, one of the uh, bishops who eventually, I think, did come in, Bishop Broadhurst, I think, did come in the, church, in the Catholic Church later on, Anglican bishop, saying that he had, quote, no problems with the doctrine of the papacy, quote, as defined by Vatican II in terms of collegiality um, in the general context of the doctrinal authority of the church as a whole, unquote. Which, to be fair, when they eventually did come in in the 2000s under Benedict, that was still kind of what you had. But it's interesting to expect that's what they, what that's what they were expecting. The other thing that's um, the other things that uh, uh, that is interesting about this is the way um, he says something really interesting. And I don't have the passage in front of me, but. Um, he mentions the fact that, again, I mentioned this before, Anglo-Catholics um, paint the liturgy. Most of them in England, most Anglo-Catholic parishes in the Church of England from 1969 onward were using the Novus Ordo. They were so desirous of union with Rome, for, for union with Rome, they used that new liturgy. And um, he says something that made my, made my skin crawl, to be honest with you. He meant this in a good way. He, I don't think he realized what he was saying. Was He said that... Um, that they were uh, that um, these Anglo-Catholics were more than willing to accept Vatican II, and it wasn't a big deal for them, as it was. He mentions this is the only time he basically mentions Catholic traditionalists in the book. He says we didn't have any problems with it because I, can't, I wish I could, I'll find the passage for you in a minute if I can, because they'd already because the Anglo-Catholics had already been through this during the English Reformation. In other words, they'd already had their old liturgy destroyed, so it wasn't as big of a deal for them as it was for the traditionalists. And God, I can't find this. It's here somewhere. Uh, he mentions it. I'll, maybe I'll find it and put it in the notes or something to this, uh, uh, or to the show description uh, when I post this. But it's a pretty revealing thing to say about Vatican II because he, he's basically saying that in liturgical terms it was like the English Reformation, which other people have pointed out. Um, Michael Davies, who was a, actually he was Welsh, but he was an Englishman, made that, made, wrote several books about that. But it's pretty striking that he mentioned that 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 directly in the book. The other thing is, again, the view of the Catholic Church from people who came outside of it is a couple of different things. One was he he talked to a lot of these Anglicans who did make the jump to Rome anyway before 1998. 
And I'm going to read a passage to you because it's fascinating because the difference, because he's talking about the differences between churches, parishes in the Church of England and parishes in the English Catholic Church. And it's just, um, it's interesting, this, this former Anglican clergyman who became a Catholic priest. I think this is on page 176 in this book. It's not important for you to know, but it's worth quoting in full what he says. Here, let me read this real quickly. And um, yeah, he's Adi says this is someone who, who was fairly happy. He went into the, the, the Catholic Church, was ordained, and was a, an ordinary assistant priest at a, an urban Catholic parish. He says this. He's talking about the he's talking about the differences here, and he says this. This is the the former Anglican clergyman, clergyman turned Catholic priest talking. He says one of the things you have to tackle is the inability of the English Roman Catholic mind to get away from empire. These places he means parishes. These places are like empires and not parishes. I mean, you try teaching Vatican II's idea of community, koinonia, the people of God. You can't do it because you're dealing on Sunday. You're dealing here on Sunday with six separate communities. The only common thing is you're worshiping in this particular church building. At 11, we have 300 people who came here and say Mass in their own language, which is fine, but actually the five English Masses are separate entities too. In fact, what you have here are six churches, not one. But there's only one priest who collects the money and operates the whole system. One thing I said before we all came was that the model the Anglicans are bringing is actually the model for the future, because actually the empire's gone. Catholic Church is struggling in these enormous buildings that people rattle around in just as we experience as Anglicans. Whereas the group I brought with me, there were 70 or 80 of us, we were an, ap- we were an absolutely self-financing, self-running church, the f- perfect Vatican II model, except we didn't have Peter, unquote. And I bring that up, I quote that passage because he, <laughs> there are so many interesting things about it. But the idea that there are actually several churches in one, in one parish, and, um, you know, he says he's bringing this, he meant his own group of Anglo-Catholics, right? And what he means, I think, is that the Catholic Church is, uh, he doesn't say it out loud, has become, has be, is kind of actually like the old um, Anglican, not parish, but parishes, you know, uh, weren't that way. The church it was, but the idea that there are several in one. And uh, I think we all, if you've been to your local Catholic parish, you kind of know this is true. Um, they're not one single community, a lot of them. There's that much difference between people already at that level. And I thought it was fascinating. They noticed that in the 1990s. And then finally, the experience of these Anglo-Catholics. One thing that stands out in all this was the just rank dishonesty of progressive Catholics. Um, they especially attacked these Anglo-Catholics for saying they didn't, quote-unquote, fully accept Catholicism. When, again, as I mentioned before, I mentioned that quotation, behind their back they were basically, you know, cheering for women's ordination. The real issue is they, they, they already rejected the teaching of the church. So, not surprising, but it's worth noting in terms of the book itself. And then finally, just about Adi uh, and his predictions, because some of them came true. Uh, some of them did come true, uh, the things that he says in the book. He was correct in predicting that the um, that there would be eventually a um, uh, a reunion of some sort that you get the uh, you get the Anglican uh, Anglican ordinary that's created in two thousand nine, and uh, he was perceptive about the divisions in the Catholic Church. He actually he actually says at one point that uh, yeah, more or less the same tensions are there in the Catholic Church that are in the Church of England, but. Um, <clears throat> But I think he didn't realize how serious they were. I think he thought, 
And he's correct. Uh, the papacy is a big difference. Of course, Benedict XVI will fulfill his prediction about the Roman option, right? But I think, and he never comes out and says this, but I think he was, I think he thought that this by itself, the papacy would be enough to prevent a sort of progressive takeover of the Catholic Church as happened in the Church of England. And I say naive because the subtitle of the book is The Realignment of English-Speaking Christianity. He, his idea was, as these Anglo-Catholics would leave the Church of England, the Church of England would become more Protestant, more firmly Protestant, and the Catholic Church would become more Catholic. He was thinking of realignment in terms of solid blocks. And um, again, th this is, of course, turns out to be totally wrong. And the reason why is because, a lot like Ratzinger, Ratzinger, by the way, didn't understand <laughs> why the English bishops were so reticent to accept these people. Uh, he is supposed to have said, uh, after the, the 1993 meeting, which mostly scuttled any sort of um, larger you know, plan for these people, uh, the quotation is, what are the English bishops afraid of? Uh, and it's pretty clear in retrospect, um, the only thing they were afraid of was being found out of how little they actually believed <laughs> at the time. Um, what Ratzinger, what William Adi did not realize is just how many ecclesial institutions Progressive actually controlled, which is the majority of them. And uh, he was, and I think it's because he was actually aware, he talks about this, he talks about how certain feminists uh, and other progressives in the Church of England and the English Catholic Church practiced what he called entryism, the idea of going in institutions that you hate anyway and trying to subvert them. Um, he knew this, but he seemed, uh, again, I think, again, I'm thinking of myself, right? Because I used to be what I'd call a conservative Catholic. I thought, you know, I don't know what I thought, but I thought, you know, oh yeah, there, there are these people out here who are crazy, but somebody somewhere in Rome, inside the Vatican, whatever, the USCCB. Somebody's taking care of that. <clears throat> and um, that was the mistake, because they were being taken care of, <laughs> uh, ultimately. Uh, and then finally, he actually, he actually asked this question at one point, because so many of these... Um, Anglicans in the 1990s who did try to come over, these clergymen, you know, trying to bring their congregations with them, sometimes they were put off, you know, bluntly. Other times they were put off with, I think one bishop said, well, you know, you don't have that quite to have that Catholic ethos yet. And Adi asked, you know, with some, with, very fairly, what the hell is that supposed to mean, <laughs> Catholic ethos? But it's worth asking, is like, again, at this point, not in principle, not in principle, I'm not talking about the doctrines or the dogma or the theology, but in principle, what is a Catholic? Um, in practical terms. Uh, you know, you think about it, it's kind of, it is kind of like what that Anglican clergyman described it, an empire, which is to say nothing but a big authority holding together a bunch of people who don't have anything in common. And I think about what that Anglican clergyman said, because he basically was saying was that you can't have such a diversity of belief within one institution, because eventually you're not going to have diverse, it's not going to be diversity of belief, it's going to be different faiths, plural. It's what happened in the Church of England. And it is, I think, is what's happening in the Catholic Church as we speak. And um, what, his, what his little speech about, you know, we have our small group who are all, you know, what he meant was, he didn't say it in these terms, but sociologically speaking, he, I think he was basically saying the Catholic Church of the future would probably be more sectarian. 
what do I mean by that? I don't mean a sect as, as being a, not being the true church, but I mean, sociologically speaking, a sect is a smaller, more unified body of people, more self-selected. Self-selected for what? Self-selected for beliefs. <laughs> they all share the same beliefs. Um, I just don't think you can go on as one institution with the sorts of, you know, um, divisions that we have. And um, uh, I, again, I don't know where this is going to go, but I think this we're on this path already in terms of the Catholic Church. And I highly recommend, if you want to get a sense of this, i just give you a long, <laughs> this is about a 40-minute, it looks like, um, disquisition on this book. I highly recommend, if you want to get a, a background on, on where the Catholic Church might be going, uh, you should go read The Roman Option by William Adi. Um, and maybe look up your local, by the way, your local ordinary parish. Most of the former uh, Anglicans I know are... Um, they understand what's coming, but they 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 seem to they have faith. That's why they came over. So maybe you can share some of so share some of your uh, you know uh, concerns with them uh, with all the stuff that's going on in the church. But uh, informed by this, this is what you know. This is why you read books. This is why you do these sorts of things. This is why you study history, so you kind of know where things are coming to prepare for them, and um, with God's grace, withstand these forces. Uh, and we can need all the allies we can get as believing Catholics. And I've mentioned, by the way, not even I mean, the former Anglicans or the Ordinariates. I still have friends who are members of Anglican bodies. Again, I know they're part of Protestant bodies, but at this point, uh, the same forces that are destroying uh, the Protestant churches, the Protestant bodies are destroying the Catholic Church. So um, um, pray for all who are faithful and decent and uh, going through these times. Uh, as I do for you, my listeners, thank you again for listening to uh, Controversies in Church History. Hope this was helpful. Again, this is heavy stuff we're doing here, but I do recommend the book. Adi's, Adi, by the way, is not nearly as pessimistic as I am, and it's probably good to be tempered. Uh, I, do think, I do think there is still a Roman option, ultimately. I'll put it that way. It won't always be like it is today. That is a difference here. Um, so I'll leave you with that uh, sign of hope. And again, um, thank you for listening. Um, if you like this content, go like, uh, go follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment. I mean, constructive comments. I'll, I'll try to get back to you. I, sometimes I'm kind of busy lately doing stuff, writing, uh, looking for uh, gig work and stuff like that, but I'll try to get back to you. Uh, be on the lookout for some updates in the future. I'm going to try to be doing some, hopefully, God help me, live streams or something to get in touch with you all. So we'll be doing some of that. New episodes will be dropping for our patrons on Patreon. And eventually the same stuff will get to the to the to my little wider audience here. So, uh, yeah, go subscribe on YouTube. Help get the subscriber count up. I'd really appreciate it. Um, give a listen, by the way, to all the back episodes. I think I have over 80 episodes now on Spotify. Um, I try to have more stuff, get some more stuff out there, re-record some uh, some stuff where the audio is not good. So, I'll be having new content coming one way or the other. But uh, that is all for now. Uh, thank you. God bless you. Uh, and have a great week, everyone.